0: Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Today's podcast is about ESG investing. That's investing based on environmental, societal, and governance factors. The whole discussion is fraught for reasons I'll go over. But one thing is for sure. It's gone from an ethical or virtue-based exclusionary model, once known as SRI, or socially responsible investing, to more of an inclusionary model utilizing rankings from Wall Street and consultants – As if that's a sure way to make things better. In between, you still have the field of impact investing and the all-encompassing sustainable investing. For better or worse, ESG has achieved dominance, something attributable initially to a letter distributed by UN Secretary General Kofi Annan back in 2004. I say or for worse because the E, the S, and the G are kind of mutually exclusive to me, and that makes things more complex maybe than they need to be especially when addressing the two big questions for the movement, what are investor returns with ESG-focused allocations, and does the movement achieve its goals in changing behavior for the betterment of mankind? Bringing back SIN stocks into the ESG discussion furthers the confusion a little. The good news is that there's a great book out from Sam Adams and Larry Swedro that pulls it all together. It's almost a meta-study on the space. I have done no primary research, to be clear. I have experience in impact investing, specifically in sustainable agriculture, and one of my favorite parts of the book, Bias Alert, is when the authors point out that impact investing really implies private equity or venture capital. But before we get to the discussion with Larry and Sam, let's go over some other papers and interviews that are out there. Let me say first that when AQR's Cliff Asnes weighs in on ESG, shit just got real. Cliff has been active on Twitter recently regarding this topic. And in so doing, reference two blog posts he wrote on the subject, one in 2017 and one in February of this year. Links in the episode notes. In the first paper, Cliff raises the issue that I'll call, my words not his, Wall Street greenwashing. That is, opportunists who launch an ESG fund claiming you will make the world a better place and make more money. His high-level point is that money flowing out of companies with low ESG scores into companies with high ESG scores raises the cost of capital of the former and lowers it for the latter, reflected in lower earnings multiples, for example, in the former and higher PEs in the latter, which does two things. A higher cost of capital for companies with low ESG scores necessarily, at least in terms of Finance 101 theory, means fewer of those bad projects get financed. The trade-off is, for investors, that those highly rated ESG companies have what Suedro and Adams referred to as an ESG premium or greenium in their stock prices, necessitating lower returns in the future, and the data they share bears that out. Cliff's more recent piece takes issue with a silly man-group attack on short-selling in the ESG space that it doesn't count as a carbon offset, to which Cliff says, Duh. He doesn't actually say duh. Cliff is an annoyingly brilliant writer for a spoonbender, so I encourage you to read the actual post. Again, link in the episode notes. Then he walks through the mechanics of buying and selling, premiums and discounts, higher expected returns and lower returns again. Is that the beginning, middle, and end of the impact from ESG investing? Is that all the good companies get out of it, you know, for being good? In an interview with William Green, Aswath Damodaran thinks so. Being good costs you something. End of story. And while that appears to be true for investors, Adams and Swedgerow think companies are gaining sustainable advantages by being good in the form of hiring and reduced tail risk. One nuance to the return story, in reading the book called Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing, it occurred to me along the way as a former stock picker that there was an opportunity to generate excess returns in this space by buying stocks with ESG scores that were on the rise, that is, before the ESG premium got priced in. Sam Adams, a DFA alum, thinks it's still pretty tough to get ahead of that as an analyst. A recent paper from Alpha Architect shares a study that approaches that same topic from what else a quantitative perspective. While we're on the topic of quantitative investing generally and passive indexing specifically, I talked a fair bit about BlackRock, Larry Fink's worldview and ESG with Trillion's author and Financial Times Alphaville editor, Robin Wigglesworth back in January. I recommend the entire interview from January, but here's a snippet.
1: We expect asset managers to play a far more proactive role in a lot of fairly major public policy areas. And I think there are good financial reasons why some of these things need to be addressed. But the parallel push of getting asset managers to take a far more aggressive stance uh, on a wide range of issues at the same time as the passive funds are getting bigger and bigger and more and more powerful, I think that is potentially problematic. Okay. Because fundamentally, look, I think many of these issues are best or not just best, but only
0: should sit with elected representatives of the people. Now, on to the discussion with Sam and Larry. To hear more from Larry and Sam, please check out the full interview on New Books Network. Again, link in the notes. We started with a little background from each of them. Congratulations on writing a book that's both informative and balanced on a subject that can be emotionally charged for some folks. Sam, what was your educational and career path that led you to founding
2: Vert?
1: Oh, the uh, yeah, the big question, right? <laughs> Why are we here? Um, well, I uh, ended up, uh, I was a philosophy major at the University of Colorado Boulder, which is uh, a, a, a way of saying I was going to be unemployed for a while. And so uh, <laughs> I was a ski bum and a climbing bum. So I actually have spent a lot of time in the mountains, uh, grew up skiing. So I seen climate change up uh, close and personal. But my career path was in financial services, and I worked at Dimensional Fund Advisors, a large fund manager, um, for a long time, for about 20 years. And so I had these kind of two parts to my personality, climber and skier, you know, mountaineer and capitalist, and they weren't really reconcilable for a while. But I did learn about companies changing the ways they do things to a more circular economy, Figuring out ways to transition to low carbon sources of energy. Uh, And then ESG investing came along in the mid 2000s. And I asked some hard questions. I'm sure we're going to get into those about whether it's a real investment strategy, what the performance is, does it have impact. And when I answered those satisfactorily to myself, I said, This is what I want to do full time. Uh, And so left uh, that very lucrative and a wonderful. job at Dimensional to start Vert Asset Management, really to help financial advisors and individual investors uh, shift more of their money to sustainable investing.
0: And, and DFA has come up multiple times already on, on my podcast. Larry, among your many books, you wrote one that was a guide to a winning investment strategy. How does an ESG allocation typically fit into an individual's investment strategy in your experience at your firm, is it a percentage of the total or for a lot of people, is it kind of all or nothing?
2: Um, I, I would answer it this way, that the ESG movement, really, the way to think about it, I would view it as sort of a hockey stick, which really only began to gain real momentum in around 2017, 18. And then in 19, it really exploded Um uh, And so we have actually had very little demand from our clients. And we're a $65 billion firm. I would say just a few percent of our investment dollars are allocated specifically with an ESG type of guideline from the investor. Now, what I noticed was this big trend coming. We're seeing in the demand mutual funds being created. Very importantly, for the first time, you had a ton of academic literature focusing on it. The literature often follows the demand for product and trying to figure out what are the impact on the risk and rewards of portfolios. So I decided we ought to have a book about this so we could educate our clients about the pros and cons of ESG investing so they could make intelligent decisions. Uh, And I began writing a lot of papers on the subject, writing up dozens of academic papers. And then uh, I said, Joe, we've got to turn this into a book. And my knowledge is on the academic research showing the impact on risk and returns. And also importantly, on the impact sustainable investors were having on companies themselves. But I didn't have the background on the whole history of the movement. So I turned to my good friend, Sam, who I would known for a long time at Dimensional, and I knew he was big into this movement. So I asked if he'd join me and co-author the book, combining our skill sets, and that's how we ended up working together.
0: I asked Sam and Larry to talk about how their firms allocate to sustainable investing, and what do all those different terms mean anyway?
1: Yeah, we run a mutual fund, which is an ESG in public real estate. So we buy publicly listed real estate investment trusts and we prioritize the ones that are committed to sustainability. So we're doing the ESG research and the security selection within the portfolio and we leave it to the job of the investor, or the advisor to say, how much do I have allocated to real estate in my you know equity bond real estate uh, portfolio mix? Um, And how much do I want in sustainability within that?
2: Yeah, and at Buckingham, the way we do it is if clients want to combine living their values with their investments, we help them try to achieve both of those goals. And we use either the funds of Dimensional, uh, which uses academic research to try to enhance the returns of sustainable portfolios, or... or we can build individually tailored portfolios by using separately managed accounts. And there we have three good options, Dimensional, aperio and Parametric, and we do use uh, those three as well. And Sam, maybe just touch on the chapter in the book on implementation, what we did there.
1: Yeah, we put a, a, a how-to guide. Um, it's a long chapter on you know how to Take your, your most of the principles you adhere to in your existing investment strategy, you know, get a risk capacity and tolerance and define to, to your asset allocation. And then, how do you implement that with ESG or SRI mutual funds and ETFs? Um, and what the differences are and what you need to look out for. And then, we also have in the back of the book um, some illustrations of different types of portfolios investors might want to. Look at if they're focused on index funds, if they're focused on factor tilted funds like the dimensional ones, if they're focused more on shareholder engagement, those types of things.
0: Another bit of magic the book performs is helping readers understand some of the terms we've already used, the alphabet soup that is SRI, ESG, impact investing and sustainable investing. Can you just, because you almost can't even go to the next level without just a a basic understanding of what those are and, and what they're not
1: with that hockey stick that larry was talking about when all the uh, the financial services industry started to get behind this um it's great because there's more product and more investment opp- opportunities available but no one is singing from the same hymn sheet or and so all the words are used interchangeably so setting out a, a set of definitions is critical we call the whole field sustainable investing and we say there's thousands of ways to invest within that but there's three main categories ESG, SRI, and impact. And that's why they're on the front cover of the book. Uh, SRI is the oldest one that goes back hundreds of years, thousands of years. And it's an investor who wants to invest for total return, but they have some no-go areas. They have a problem with alcohol or tobacco or gambling or guns or abortion or whatever it is. And so they say, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever diversification or even potential return there because I just can't have that stuff in my portfolio. And so a lot of people's idea around sustainable investing is colored by SRI. They think that that's what it is. But in 2005, the UN defined ESG investing for the first time, environmental, social, and governance investing. And this is different. Instead of asking the investor what they care about, what's important to them, you ask the companies what's important to them. You say, what's your environmental footprint? Are you consuming lots of natural resources that might become scarce? Are you producing lots of pollution that you could get some regulatory fines for? Uh, And what's your social uh, footprint, if you will? How are you treating your employees? Uh, Do you have some uh, strife there? Or do you uh, have good relations with your suppliers and your, your customers? Um, And so this is a risk-based analysis, right, of the companies and what's most material to their bottom line through these additional risk lenses of environmental, social, and governance. And so that's more like akin to conventional investing with an extra layer rather than tuning it to your individual values. And then the third category is very different. Impact investing is mostly private companies or private opportunities where You're investing for a specific problem that you want to solve. And so I like to kind of call it a a for-profit version of philanthropy. I want more women and girls to be educated in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm going to fund this company that has a novel way of scaling out educational opportunities for women, right? Uh, Rather than donating money, I'm going to put it in a for-profit enterprise because sometimes those scale better. Uh, so those three are the different types, ESG, SRI, and impact. And you can immediately see how different they are in application. An ESG strategy you can do with regular mutual funds and ETFs, right? SRI, you might need some customization, so you might need a uh, separately managed account. And impact investing is often in the realm off of the public markets, so very different.
0: Next, we jump to the three sources of returns that the book points out, the first being financial returns, then societal and personal returns. Starting with those financial returns, I asked Larry how they were impacted by this ESG halo, which raises stock prices and lowers cost of capital, but then also lowers returns for investors going forward.
2: Yeah, I think a good way for your listeners, uh, someone who's not an expert in finance to think about it, is think about, the say, the dot-com companies in 1995. Uh, they had a certain expected return uh, and certain risks. Then th- that became very popular, what economists would call a curse of popularity. Uh, that bid up their prices without affecting the cash flows generated by the companies and ultimately their true valuation. So as the valuations were going up, investors were realizing capital gains, and unfortunately, investors like to chase returns, and that leads to them even more money coming in and it bidding up prices, lowering the returns in the future, and eventually, bubbles burst. Uh, so what you, in this case, it's a, not quite the same effect, because good ESG companies obviously have earnings uh, as well. Uh, but you don't affect their stock, uh, their earnings by buying their stock. You also don't affect their earnings by selling their stock. You have to remember that all stocks are owned by somebody. So you don't have an impact and deprive the company of capital uh, by not buying their stock, but you do change their cost of that capital. If enough investors favor a stock, uh, let's say both you have two companies, a green and a brown. They each earn ten dollars, and they're both trading at a hundred, a PE of ten. If a, more money comes out of the brown stocks, goes into the green, the PE goes up to fifteen. It's now selling at one fifty, but it's still earning ten dollars. Your expected return now is seven percent or so. And the other stock goes, you know, from uh, you know from a hundred down to eighty, and now. It's only got an 8PE, and the expected return is 12 and a half. And so that's the way to think about it. Cash flows going into favored good scoring companies can drive up the prices in the short term, providing capital gains in that short term until that equilibrium is reached. Um, and the reverse is true for brown companies. Now, what we do need to make sure people understand as well is this, if a lot of people screen out stocks, like in the old SRI days, they screened out the Trinity of sin companies, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, might add pornography uh, as well. Those screening out of those companies led to sin stocks, as we show in the book, outperforming the market by about 3% a year. That's that cost of capital impact basically playing out. So think about what, uh, what can happen. And it's really illustrated in a wonderful paper called Dynamic Equilibrium that looked at the three-year period, 2018 through 2020. And that was when that hockey stick of cash flows really exploded. And they looked at it and said, let's say there's no impact on valuations from these cash flows coming in. The brown stocks would have outperformed by about two or 3%. However, the cash flows were so big, it actually resulted in the green stocks outperforming over that three-year period by 7%. In effect, I, what I called, it was a 10% greenium. So Now you're getting a premium because of that, but it's now going forward, you have those lower expected returns there. But you clearly are affecting the company's behavior because everyone uh, who's a corporate CFO or executive wants to have lower cost of their debt, wants to have a higher PE multiple. So they're going to try to change behaviors so they can achieve that. And so you're having a positive impact on, on corporate behavior. And we have a whole chapter dedicated to that particular subject. So hopefully that clears up. You have these conflicting forces going on. Expected returns to brown stocks should be higher. But if there's enough cash flows coming in, green can outperform until we get that new equilibrium. And Sam and I kind of think we're probably around the fourth inning of a nine-inning game here. There's still a long way to go. Probably about globally 40% or so of money is invested with some kind of uh, sustainable strategy. And the surveys are finding that by, say, the next 15 years or so, that number is going to be in the 80 to 90%. So we think there's a reasonable chance investors will have their cake and be able to eat it too because of the cash flow effect. But all crystal balls are cloudy. We can't predict that.
0: Now, that hot topic I teased in the intro. Other than that lower cost of capital, what are the long-term benefits to a company that is a good ESG corporate citizen, and is there anything that a financial analyst can do with that information?
1: Well, I'll speak from personal experience in running our ESG fund, the Global Sustainable Real Estate Fund. Um, You know, you get this ESG data, and I'm not an active manager, right? I come from the other school of, of thinking, but... I'm looking at it. And I'm saying, does this information help me at all? And unfortunately, it doesn't. It's just as hard as before. You you know, you definitely see some advantages that the sustainable companies have. They have lower utility costs because they're more energy efficient. They have less employee turnover costs. They have all these benefits, okay? But the major factors of stock returns in the short term you know just wash those out so you'll say okay well this company is one of the best retail uh real estate companies in the world but <laughs> retail got crushed in covid right so you you know um you, you we like to think that over the long term these companies will be better set up if you think about a lot of sustainability purchase decisions it's I'm just changing the cash flows that I need. I have a big cap up front. I need to spend some money to buy this new, more efficient uh, s- system, like an eight, a- like a heating and ventilation and air conditioning system. And I'll save money over the long term, or I'm going to switch to renewable energies and flatten out my energy costs. So they'll be better set up for the long term. Um, But right? Does that give them lower expected returns because they're lower risk and safer companies going on in the future? So again, it's really hard to use ESG information, even though it's better information and more information to, to create alpha as an active manager. I do think you can sort companies who are getting more prepared for the future and not, um, but whether that turns into alpha, too early to say
2: Yeah, but Sam, uh, just to jump on your point, while we don't know about the alpha, we do know with certainty based on the data that companies with better ESG scores are less risky. They're less subject to environmental lawsuits, frauds, consumer boycotts, uh, all kinds of issues. And the research shows that that very clearly, including empirical evidence during the COVID-19 crisis, good scoring companies, ESG actually did better. I'll also add one other thing that Sam touched on, which is think about today, one of the big challenges for corporations is a place we've never been before in the US is history where we have 1.8 jobs openings for every, uh, for every unemployed person. Uh, so we're in an incredibly tight labor market And the research is showing, especially among the millennials now that they want to work for companies that are good ESG citizens. And so it's going to be very hard to attract talent, uh, unless you are a good scoring company, you won't be able to uh, 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 not only get talent, but keep it because companies that uh, treat their employees well are more diverse, have better scores there. Uh, And they end up with higher employee satisfaction. And the research shows very clearly companies that have higher employee satisfaction are more profitable. So you get this virtuous circle, companies improving their behavior, attracting people who are more motivated, satisfied, become more productive and make the company more profitable.
0: I asked Sam about fees in the ESG fund space and if there was any way to do this passively.
1: Yeah, you can do it passively. You can get fees down, but you have to really ask what you want from the fund manager, right? So uh, there's some really interesting differences between fund managers. Some you might want to pay a little bit more for some extra ESG screening and research and really getting that um uh, better definition of what's sustainable and what's not. Uh, you might want to pay more for shareholder engagement. Uh, you know, a mutual fund or a commingled vehicle, um, the fund manager is the one that's going to vote the proxies, is going to do shareholders, is going to reach out to companies like we do at Vert and encourage them to do better. Even though we're only investing in sustainability leaders, right? Some of the companies aren't leading in all aspects. And we can say, hey, you could do a better job of being transparent about your climate risks, uh, or you could do a better job uh, with your employee engagement. And so we're reaching out to every company in the fund every year. Now, maybe that's not important to you and you'd want to have lower costs, but these are the types of things that we encourage investors to look at in the books. Like, what's your focus? Is it strength of ESG tilt? Uh, is it the quality of the management in determining who's leaders and laggards? Is it the shareholder advocacy uh, and engagement? What, what are the things that you want to? And so some people will say, I just want the cheapest ESG tilt I can get. Some people will say, I want the manager to be pushing uh, it for positivity more. Uh, there's thankfully lots of options. With that hockey stick, we went from about 50 uh, ESG funds and ETFs to over 500 now. So there's lots of options.
2: Yeah, and I would just add add this. Uh, One of the big benefits of the technology revolution is that it has become much easier to develop uh, and cheaper to run separately managed accounts. So for somebody who really wants to be specific, has very specific values and says, I want to screen these higher companies out uh, of my portfolio, uh, you can build separately managed accounts, you no longer need 10s of millions of dollars, hundreds of 1000s is enough. And the cost is going to be in the 25 to maybe 3540 basis points, uh, which is not really excessive, especially when you're trying to tailor a portfolio to your specific needs. So you know a lot of those hurdles have, have gone away.
0: Talk about the three challenges of capitalism you present in the book, the shareholder primacy, linear extraction and short time frames and are there any implementable fixes?
1: The the short time frames we've been working on a long time Larry and I in particular right exhorting investors to switch to a longer term horizon not just because of the difficulties of picking what's going to happen in the stock market over the short term. But what I witnessed, before, what I referenced before, if you have a three-year time horizon, say you're the CFO of a public company, and you say, I have to meet, or worse, you have to meet your numbers, your earnings numbers every quarter, you're really hamstrung in what you can do to set the company up for success in the future, Right. But if you said, I have a five-year or 10-year time horizon, I can invest in plant and equipment and products and things that will save us money and will be more efficient going forward. So the longer term you get, the more these sustainable projects pencil out, right? Everyone switched to LED lights because that pencils out in a year, right? That's an easy win. Putting solar panels on the roof, that's three years. A geothermal system? That might be 20 years, right? But, but you get more benefits the longer you go out. And so the long-term perspective is necessary both at the company level and the investor uh, level. The linear approach is just the, the linear extraction issue is just the fact that we live on a finite planet, right? And taking natural resources, making products, and then throwing them in the waste bin, what we call take-make-waste, is a road to ecological <laughs> to planetary disaster. So circular business models are not only better for the planet, but better for the company, right? When you come up with a system where your inputs are your outputs and they just go around and around, right? That means you're not relying on natural resources and you don't have a waste problem. And so companies that are coming up with those circular business models um, are, again, like in the real estate space, Taking a building like the Empire State Building, right, and giving it an energy retrofit 100 years after it was built, and now you've reduced the energy use of it 40%, and it's a healthier building for uh, tenants. That means that building can continue being used for a long, lot more longer, right? Um, so that is the the circular business model one, and then the shareholder, the stakeholder primacy or the shareholder primacy model. Um, this one, uh, thankfully, I don't, it, it was a nice debate a couple of years ago, but everyone's recognized that with a tight labor market, you have to be good to your employees, right? Um, with more pressure from, uh, you know, uh, your, your customers to have uh, more sustainable products, you have to be uh, entering into dialogue with your customers about what they want. Uh, This is no longer, you know, ignore everything and send profits to the shareholders. To do that, you have to take into account the other stakeholders. The way to maximize profits is to consider all of your stakeholders. And so those three things, uh, the stakeholder uh, privacy model now moving to, you know, moving to stakeholder from from, uh, shareholder, the circular business models, uh, and the long-term time horizons. hopefully we're making progress on those.
2: Uh, it seems like we are.
0: Next, we jump to the issue of third-party rating services.
2: First of all, you have three categories here, and they're the sustainable, you have E, S, and G. So one rater, and there are seven different ones, could say we're going to look at the, say, seven categories under the E's, uh, which include impact on climate, for example, uh, and... Then we'll look at the five categories on the S's, like number of women, minorities on the boards, pay gaps, things like that. And then we'll look at governance, how we treat shareholders, uh, et cetera. Uh, And they could say, we're gonna equal weight those three scores that are combined from each of those factors. Then you get a different rater who says, I'm gonna put 80% of the weight on the environment and 10% on the others. So that creates a problem. And then even within, say, the S, how do you decide somebody is a good uh, corporate citizen? Do you look at the number of women or minorities on boards? Do you look at the number of offices in the company or managers? Do you look at pay gaps? Do you look at some combination of those, those kinds of issues? Everyone can decide on what's the metrics they're going to look at. Uh, and then, even if you agree on the metric, someone decides to weight one differently. So I don't think we're really likely to ever get total agreement. Uh, and it, it is a big problem. It's not like with bonds, where you have three different rating agencies, Moody's, Fitch, and S and P that dominate. But the correlation of their scores is like ninety nine point five percent. If you look at one and get a triple B, the odds are almost a hundred percent the others will be identical. Here, you can have three different raters and they could be very different depending upon the scores. And I'll use one other example to help your listeners. You can look at, say, carbon emissions and say, do we look at their scope, what are called scope one emissions, what goes into my product that I'm making? Do you look at scope one and two, all the supply parts that come to me and I, then make it or scope three, what it takes to even get it to the consumer. Uh, And so you could think about Amazon, someone, if they look at scope one, they don't produce any, oh, they're great. But if you then look at scope three and you look at all their trucks driving around the neighborhoods and polluting the air, maybe then they could be viewed as a bad citizen and there are no rules about, at least yet today, about who has their report, scope one, two, or three. Although that appears likely to be changing. You have both the SEC uh, and the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board trying to address, at least get people to agree on what are the issues they're going to look at. But to me, the bottom line is this. What we are clearly getting is more transparency. And I think that trend towards more transparency and disclosure Is going to increase, and that's what's really good. But I will add this differences in ratings create real problems and can lead to uh, bad conclusions when you look at the research. Because two people could look at the same data over the same period and they're using different raters and they'll come up with different answers as to the risk and return characteristics of a portfolio. So you really have to dig deep down and hard to understand what is going on in these portfolios.
1: When you have a stock analyst firm, you know, like a, like a brokerage firm that publishes a buy, hold, or sell rating on a company, right? Those analysts go and look at all kinds of data, all kinds of issues the company's facing and say, I'm going to call Coca-Cola a buy. And then another analyst, another brokerage firm down the road says, I've looked at all the data, I've talked to management, I'm going to call Coca-Cola a sell. We actually like that, right? We like the fact that there's differences of opinion. But for some reason, when an ESG, rater ESG reader, when MSCI says Coca-Cola is a sustainable company and Sustainalytics says they're not that sustainable, we get upset. But it's the exact same process. Here's what we want to fix. So that I don't have a problem with that at all. It makes it, as Larry said, very hard for researchers to define what are green companies and what are brown companies when no one agrees But that's like saying, what are favored companies, what are unfavored companies? But what we do need to get standardization on is the data. It'd be nice if everybody reported their scope one emissions in the same way. It'd be nice if everyone, uh, for example, reported how much uh, water they're using in the same way. It'd be nice if everyone had some standardization around their diversity reporting. Then we could compare companies like for like and right now, it's really hard to do that. But those standards uh, are coming.
0: In addition to the sustainable agriculture space that I was already familiar with, I wanted to know what other areas of opportunity for impact investing, Sam and Larry were seeing.
1: Oh, they're 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 everywhere now. It's really one of the most exciting things that we've seen come out. Um, the you know, some of it really started in microfinance where providing loans and um, financing to very, very poor people. Think about the impact your money can have. Your $100 or $1,000, not that much, right, could mean the world of difference for hundreds of people who only need a loan for $10 or $100 or something. So the multiplying effect of your money is incredibly powerful. Um, And the only, I would say, thing that continues to disappoint me about impact investing as the opportunities grow is that it is hard still for regular investors to do. A lot of those investments require big investments like a million and up. You need to be a sophisticated or accredited investor. That's slowly changing. There's more and more platforms um, for crowdfunding and those types of things. But this is a really great way for investors to add some oomph to your portfolio. Like, I mean, you know, when you take your invested capital and you switch it from conventional investing to uh, ESG investing, you are positively influencing the world because you're joining a growing cohort of investors who are demanding better performance, sustainability performance from companies. Um, But that feels different than... You know, sending a couple thousand dollars to some poor village and they get to change their life livelihoods because of your uh, contribution. I used one of these crowdfunding sources to send a couple thousand dollars to a village in Peru that wanted to get their coffee beans certified organic. They already were organic but they didn't have the certification. But if they got the certification, they could charge more money for their beans and get more uh, profits for their efforts. And so I did that. I sent the money and they, the company did, I mean, the, the co-op at the uh, at this village, got the certification started charging more for their beans and they paid me back my loan within six months. It was really fast. Uh, And I felt really, really good about what I had uh, done for these people. But then the crowdfunding platform that I was using collapsed. And they said, would you like to contribute your money to our winding up costs or would you like us to send you a check? So I contributed the the money to the winding up cost and my impact investment became a philanthropic one.
0: Larry didn't want us to get off the call until he talked about the dangers of scoring and getting back to an exclusionary process. How many great companies you might miss if you just write off all fossil fuel companies?
2: Yeah, John, I think there's one other topic that's really important for your listeners before we wrap up here. Uh, A lot of people, uh, especially individuals, wanting to express very specific values, I think make a mistake in thinking about Screening out some industries. And a lot of mutual funds look solely at how does this company score against the market. Uh, So you're going to find, for example, uh, any energy company that's producing oil is going to get a bad score uh, on the east side of the ledger, and you might therefore screen them out. However, the reason I believe it's a mistake is. I think the much better way to look at this is to look at what is called the best in class or industry neutral uh, analogy. So you would score each of the companies in the energy space. uh, And if you find that there are companies making significant investments to the transition to sustainable energy while others are not, you should favor them. Because here's a great story, probably, I would bet almost none of your listeners know, the companies that have the most green patent are the energy companies. So if you screen them out, you deprive them of capital, they then can't make investments in that transition. So we think a best in class approach is the way to go. But somebody could say, I just don't want to invest in an energy company. That's fine
1: to make this sustainability transition, we need all of companies and all of capitalism to make this switch to low carbon, right. And to uh, do all the other things we need in sustainability. Um, And so we can't just say goodbye to those oil and gas companies. We're going to need their technology and their experience, not only to give us the oil and gas, we need to get to the transition, but as Larry said, to, 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 to fund the, the, um, the, the patents to do this. For example, the uh, the energy company, the oil and gas company, uh, the French one total, uh, is committed to switching to renewables, right? They still have an oil and gas portfolio, but it would be imprudent to just, you know, cap those wells and turn them off. But they can use the profits from those to fund investments in renewables. My goal as a sustainable investor advocate is to get capitalism to push those companies who are dragging their feet all right, to start paying attention and start moving forward. Right, the leaders are out there in front. We're, we're applauding them. We want to reward them with capital, but we also want the other guys to come along. Uh, and so I get just as excited about the test about the you know Ford coming out with the electric F one hundred and fifty as I do when Tesla comes out with a new Cybertruck. Right?
0: Where else, Larry? Can people follow what you are doing? You probably have three more books in the works, I am guessing based on what a prolific writer are you, but where can they follow you? And then I'll ask Sam.
2: Yeah, so I write for three uh, websites, uh, Advisor Perspectives, uh, typically once a week, uh, sometimes a little bit more often. Um, um, And then I write for Alpha Architect. That's especially uh, for the geeks who are really into the factor investing and all the academic research. So I give them the more technical papers. And I also write for a more, call it average investor website called Evidence-Based Investor that does a great job of bringing important issues uh, to the investing public attention. Uh, I just wrote a piece about 529 plans, for example, how you have to be careful because some of them are really bad in terms of having high expenses because of bad behavior by the state governments who are taking that revenue and siphoning it off, spending it on their own endeavors instead of helping keep costs down for consumers. So, I write for those three sites. Uh, you can find our book on Amazon, of course. Um and uh we always appreciate um uh, uh, if someone takes the time, reads the book, take a few minutes if you enjoy it, write a review so others can share uh and share that on Facebook to bring this important book we think to everybody's attention. And Sam and I both put our email addresses in the book. Uh, So we're always happy to answer any question uh, from readers. So feel free to shoot us a question if you have one.
1: On my side, we've got uh, the whole effort and mission and vision is to transition more capital to sustainability. So we've got a couple of uh, opportunities. We have the Vert Global Sustainable Real Estate Fund. um, That uh, is the, One of the only options you have for sustainability in public real estate right now. We also have an education and consulting business where we help financial advisors learn how to do more sustainable investing and wrestle with some of these issues. And so vertasset.com is the website where you can get to uh, any of those uh, places. Uh, So contact me there and you can follow me on LinkedIn if you want my interpretation of all the latest news and ESG uh, issues that are coming up. Um, I'll give you my take there.
0: Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It is a, a guide right now for anyone who has any questions about it. It's, to the extent that questions can be answered today, they're answered in this book. I can't thank you both enough for your time. Have a great
1: rest of the day. Thanks, John. Thank you.
0: Just a couple of closing thoughts before I let the music roll. I do worry that this is still the purview of the wealthy. I remember sitting in on a slow money presentation up in Boulder with Woody Tash himself and a well-meaning participant asked him about drafting loan agreements for these small direct loans. And Woody's answer was, well, I wouldn't close on it anyway, so I don't do them. And that's great for him, but not for everybody. For instance, to be able to accept lower returns or to be an accredited investor to participate in privates. I do think it's changing a little bit, and you should research Iroquois Valley Farms and what they've done by converting to a private REIT to make themselves more available to retail investors, but that's not a recommendation. I also wonder on the corporate side if it isn't the companies that already have very high returns on capital that have disproportionate flexibility to be better corporate citizens, especially on the east side, that have that money to spend But we're moving in the right direction. Some of the numbers that Larry and Sam quote in the book in terms of dollars being managed this way are staggering. It blew my mind. I had no idea. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, check out the full interview with Sam and Larry on the New Books Network website.